Jennifer Lawler is a licensed clinical social worker for over the last 17 years. She's a mother, wife, sister, aunt, and a dear friend to many. As of December 2018, she became a survivor of domestic gun violence. She's an active volunteer and advocate with Moms Demand Action and the Ben's Bell Project of Connecticut. Jen started a foundation to honor her daughter, Emily Todd, whose life was ended by an act of gun violence at the age of 25 years old. She was humble, kind, a bright light who had recently completed coursework to become a shamanic wisdom practitioner. Emily loved unconditionally and had a deep connection to and respect for the earth. Jennifer founded Peace, Love, and M with hope continuing to shine light for others by serving as a source of intentional kindness and compassion in community for individuals and families who are survivors of intentional violence. Let's welcome her. Welcome back, Grief Nation listeners. And today on our show, we have a very special guest. Her name is Jennifer Lawler. And Jennifer's here to share her and very important story with us um, with our series called The Oath. Hi, Jennifer. How are you? Hi, I'm doing all right. How are you doing, Miami? I'm so pleased to finally have you on the show. And thank you for actually, you know, um, taking the time out of your day to come and tell us and share your story with us. Um, so if you could just tell us about your journey of losing your daughter, Emily. Well, um, this particular journey, I am, um, the 9th of February was 26 months since I lost my daughter, Emily, to gun violence homicide. Um, it was, a uh, like any, you know, tragedy that happens. I mean, it was just, it was so sudden and abrupt for us that I, I think it took several months just to even process what was happening. Um, the person that ended my daughter's life, she had, um, been dating for just a brief period of time, just a few weeks, and she didn't want to continue seeing him. And there's a lot in between there, but at the end of the, um, chapter for Emily's life, he ended up uh, taking her life when she um, wanted to end the relationship. So for me, it has been um, months and months of acceptance, um, rage, (laughs) um, confusion, just so many different things. One thing that's always stayed the same though, is I have not ever been angry with God. Um, I feel like he couldn't, I feel like God couldn't help it. Um, I feel like the, the power of free will came in and just, um, just made whatever happened exactly when it was going to happen and exactly how it happened. Um, so it's, been a long journey um, and I'm I'm kind of coming around now to getting to a place where I've started to feel a bit better because I've met some other people that 
have sadly experienced the same thing or something similar, you know, the, the just that epic sudden loss, especially if your child, it's, it's, it's so unnatural. We're not equipped for that. Um, it's not how it's, you know, supposed to be. So, um, with that, I've, I've felt stronger and stronger and stronger and just gone on to try to use my voice in different ways and, you know, reconnect to my daughter and feel how I can truly keep her with me as I be, continue to live like this, um, in this, this space that's not anything what it was before that day. I'm so sorry that this tragedy happened to you and your family. Can you um, explain to us um, some of the details surrounding um, you receiving that initial call of what happened? Oh dear God, yes. Um, you know, we. I woke on um, the morning of December 9th to my husband um, telling me that Emily's car wasn't out front. And it was bizarre because we'd you know, we'd been with her the night before. My husband had been talking with her, my son and I, we were goofing around, having a pillow fight. I didn't even, I didn't even think she was gonna be leaving the house because she had to work the next day. And so it was real strange. And, you know, one thing about Emily that she was pretty good about respecting is even at 25, um, if she wasn't gonna come home, we just wanted her to let us know so that I didn't wake up with that kind of worry, you know? Um, be it that she could be hurt somewhere or her card broke down or whatever the case, you know, there's plenty of ways to just communicate. And so that's all we expected from her as a young adult living in our home was just that respect so that I wouldn't, um, my husband, and I wouldn't be worried for her safety. And so when it, when I woke, that was the very first thing I did is I looked at my phone, um, and my husband had already looked at his. So I was like, oh boy, you know, here we are. Um, this is not not like her but you know she hadn't done it a hundred percent perfectly so maybe you know yeah fell to sleep whatever um but that day was both the shortest and longest day of my my entire life as i've ever known it um i started calling her and texting her and wasn't getting a response which was completely unlike her we were very very close um and then I thought, okay, maybe she thinks I'm, I'm angry with her. Let me reach out to, you know, her dad and ask her dad to do that. And then her friends, because, you know, maybe she's going to answer her friends. Why wouldn't she answer her friends? So yeah. she wasn't answering phone or text from anyone. And and it just, I, I just knew something was very, very wrong. And I got the, the local police department to come over to my home and, they were, um, as as I expected them to be, they were reluctant to consider her a missing person because it hadn't been 24 hours and she was a you know young adult. And so I had to really kick in um, some demands on that, that they take it seriously and to listen to a mother. That was my biggest thing. Like, you don't understand. You have a way to do your job, but I'm telling you as her mother, there is something wrong. Yeah. Um, she would never, ever do this. And so... When they left my house, I really didn't know how hard they'd work on it right then, but I learned that they did because um, within a few hours, I received a phone call for, from the officer that was at my house. He asked me if I had any photos of Emily, if she had any um, unique markings on her, like a piercing or a tattoo. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, 
I balked a little bit and thought, what do you want that for? Like, what, why is this how you're spending your time? And, um, and, and he just said, oh, well, you know, she's 25. If we find her, you know, she doesn't have to come with us, but you know, we'd like to know that it, yeah. for sure it's her. Yeah. Okay. So I sent, you know, sent by email some, some photos and, um, only to find out a few hours later when that officer and six or eight other, you know, police vehicles, um, I was sitting in the window looking for Emily, waiting for her to come home. And, um, all these police officers came down my, my quiet little street and, um, they, they had a, a folder. One of them had a folder in his hand and it was with photos of, um, a female that had been found about 35 minutes from our home um, overnight at like 6 a.m. that day. And they um, they had no ID for her um, and she wasn't recognizable by sight. So so they brought the photos of her at the crime scene. And that was, that was the final way I got to see Emily's body. My last moments with her were that night before, but the following day, that's how I had to confirm for the police that um, they did, in fact, have my my child in there, in their morgue, and um, I I just remember this just just collapsing, um, but somehow inherently knowing that my little boy was here in the house with us. He was only eight, and um, my husband was out, you know, pounding the pavement looking for her uh, the only clue we had of, of where she may be was that we had access to the sign-on information for her bank account and i looked in the bank account and i saw that um, there was hardly any money left in her bank and the area in which it had been um, the atm withdrawals were uh, made were you know about 35 minutes from our home so my husband had you know, he would never have left me if either of us could have predicted what was going to come down my street. Mm. But he took off and obviously couldn't take my son with him. Um, so my son was home here alone with me when the police came to the door. Jennifer, I'm so sorry that, wow, I don't think a mother, like you stated, is, is never prepared for that moment. No. And the detail that you can still remember, which is the folder in the hand. Oh my God. Never, ever forget what that looked like. Yeah. The folder. It's all I could. It's one of the only things I really remember is the folder. Yeah. And it's, you know, if you've ever watched a, some crime scene show on, you know, prior to Emily being killed, I used to watch TV. I, I no longer watch television, hardly at all, um, anything because the types of shows that I would be drawn to were the ones that had some intelligence and yeah. 
reality to them, like as far as um, like law and order or something yeah, like that. Yeah. yeah, I can't. I simply cannot. It, it, it's the folder. I get it's it. I get it. I, I totally get it. I feel the same way. Um, I used to love the crime shows, the crime podcasts, and all of that. That as well. And um, you know this this thing that has uh, torn us from our family, our children. Excuse me. Um, and sometimes tears the family apart. Absolutely. Uh, you know, our whole lives has have actually changed. And I'm just so sorry that you and your family are still experiencing this loss. But can you describe to me um, who Emily was at a young age? Oh, yes. I've spent so much time thinking about perfect words to that describe Emily outside of like ones that are commonly used. And I the one that always comes back to me is she just was simply magical. Like there was, she, there was, there's not anybody that ever met her. I'm certain. And that's even without hearing from every single person, but there's not anybody that ever met her that didn't feel lucky to have met her. Just very, very, very humble and kind. She was more concerned about the earth than she was her own self. You know, just the things that she cared about at the age that she cared about them were just, just not typical. Um, and I, she was kind of light years ahead of, of where, you know, most kids were with the things that mattered to her. And I, you know, I like to think that some of that was passed on from my mom to me and then from myself over to her. And, and Emily also had a, has a tremendous um, exterior, I mean, aunts, uncles, you know, both sides of the family that um, really, really um, have a lot of respect and love for nature, the ocean, um, animals, animals, oh my gosh. Um, so for Emily, uh, she just was so always, uh, willing to give. It didn't matter. No one had to explain themselves to her. It didn't matter how many times I tried to talk to her about doing the smallest thing, which would be, Emily, if you're going to give to the homeless, why don't you go get some food instead of money, you know, and that way we're not taking the risk of, um, you know, somebody feeling tempted to, you know, use it for alcohol or use it for drugs, or maybe they, it maybe not, it won't get stolen from them or something. And no, mom, mom, that's not what they're asking for. And it was just, it was bump bump, you know? So she was that person. She it didn't matter if a hundred out of hundred times somebody had said to her, "Em, you know, those people have gotten in trouble for, for not being authentic in, in what they're asking, you know, taking advantage of people. And, you know, this one particular area where, um, you know, these, these two homeless people would, would stay and ask for money. And she would say, oh, that doesn't matter to me. That doesn't matter to me. They must be needing it for something because who would do that, mom? Who would do that with their time if they didn't, if they didn't need to? Yeah. That's, that's not exactly a great way to spend your day, mom. You know <laughs> what I mean? So she would, yeah. <laughs> she would just like, she would just stick right to it. Um, and she was the best granddaughter, sister, cousin so loving yeah Emily was also a part of the shamanic community 
can you share her life there and the healing work that she started? Absolutely. Um, for me, it's one of my biggest sources of gratitude that I supported her with what she wanted to do with her world because shortly before she died, she had just completed a 14 month um, shamanic practitioner course here at one of the local colleges. And she had already gone to, to um, you know, four years of college and we had, we had done our best to support her and then take some loans and, you know, things like that. She had her degree in expressive arts therapy, but, but she wanted to do this other thing. And it was, it was a little bit of a, a pushback for me at first saying, you know, come on now and give it some time to, to do something with your, your degree. You know, we can't just move from thing to thing to thing to thing. And thank God I supported her because I don't know that I forgive my sister's point now and I, if I hadn't, um, and, and helped her get that taken care of financially. Cause she was kind of in between finishing college, being able to get a job. It was very overwhelming. It's nowhere near as, as easy as they tell kids to, Oh, if you go to college, you'll be out getting this job. No, none of those realities were true for her. And it was very depressing. So she was at a, um, a music festival and she met the woman who um, is a shamanic practitioner that is the professor for this course. And it just kind of went from there. I mean, when I say she was relentless and asking me to be able to do it and then, you know, she would start to figure out ways she was just going to do it on her own. And, um, and I'm thankful that I did support her to do that. So um, in October, 2018, Emily had completed that um, course and had plans. Um, I, she was so happy that the happiness that she had, there's absolutely no way that I'd have ever not continued to, to support her. So she was, um, you know, she wanted to do the, the next level. Mm -hmm. Um, she was also working at that point using some of her, her healing methods that she'd learned. She was incorporating that into expressive arts therapy um Emily worked at a, a local nursing home and had done a bunch of research um that wasn't the typical western medicine kind of research you know but she'd found information and brought it to her supervisor that um drumming circles could improve the lifespan of um people that were living with dementia mm -hmm. and that it could at a, at a bare minimum, it would improve their quality of life while they were here. Um, and so she had just gotten the go ahead early December to proceed with, you know, kind of just building up this program and doing her own thing. And, you know, she had her drums and she, she had, um, she had sat with the residents, um, and had them make little shaker cups with rice and paper cups and so yeah. that they could go along with doing some of the rhythm um and you know it, it wasn't an easy task there's a lot of resistance and a lot of moodlability with you know the the clients that she had because dementia is terrifying yeah. and um and it, it's it's a horrible loss of, of control and power and so emily was just there to kind of like cradle them in and make them feel a little, little safer while they were in that yeah. space. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
and she did not get to do that. And I am, I am so angry, Miami, about that. I am so incredibly angry that somebody not only took her from me, but took her from so many people that needed her kind of help. Right. And I'm not saying that other people won't be able to do similar things with their lives, but Emily was really, really dedicated to it. Wow. It wasn't about money. It wasn't about anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, you know, you you speak my you speak my language every time you talk about Emmy, Emily, and all of um, the spiritual work and you know the practices that she did, the rituals, the drumming circles. Uh, I know when I was first reading um, your story, and um, I just kept seeing actually when I was looking over the the moment to survive story and and the picture that you chose with all the radiance and the light and her oh eyes gosh, are these that amazing like that just and I have so many photos of her with this uh-huh. that the, the aura that's there and there's no intent you know you I'm sure a professional photographer can make that happen to a photo yeah. but no these are just the way her photos came out yeah just, yeah yeah it was just her spirit no, just yeah. she was just so bright yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I I felt that um, in, t- in times that we have had several conversations in regards to um, her her um, practices. And you know, I'm also a uh, shamanic practitioner as well. So I definitely understand it. I understand, you know, all about that world and being connected to the earth and um, the spiritual energies su- surrounding that. And uh, like I said, when I first saw that photo, I just, I felt her radiance come through and across. So I'm so excited that you are here today on the show to to share um, her continued light and all the things that she's that she has contributed um, to the earth and that she's still um, doing through your work. And I, I'm just so grateful that you you came on the show to share her story. Um, you also stated that there is a, a in your um, bio you were you were asked when I was asking you during your bio some things about Emily you did state this uh, there's a terrible stigma placed on women when relationships go bad can you clarify this for me so that uh, my viewers can understand that a lot more oh absolutely I mean even I learned that even with even after having my daughter executed there were still a community of people out there in you know cyber primarily in cyber world, I thank God don't have people close to my world that that did this to me right up in my face. But the the shaming that happens for for someone is just not even I, I still to this day have a hard time make like understanding how you can actually come to conclusion when the bottom line is that the, no one has the right to end someone's life, yeah. right? Everyone has the right to stop a relationship. We should have that right. Um, we don't own one another. Um, and, you know, if anybody, I'm certain, went about, you know, trying to back out of a dating relationship that she had for a few weeks in a kind way, I am positive that it would have been my daughter. Um, you know, she she, she just did it. It wasn't for her. And um, the stigma surrounding, oh, my um, the, the things that were said and written on the internet about my child after this happened, I, 
I didn't want to look, but I am in hindsight. I'm glad I did because it has helped me now to feel strong. At that point, it, it would tear me down. Um, but I'm not that same person and I'm not in that same, um, the sensitivity isn't the same because I'm, I, I've able to intelligently realize that they are sick to be yeah. thinking like that. But for somebody to say, you know, um, and especially, you know, so Emily was a Caucasian woman. This is a black male that, um, she'd been dating. It, absolutely not a moment did any of that enter my radar, my family's radar. None of us thought about, as far as I was concerned, the person that did this to her, I could have come up with 10 other ways to describe him before I'd have ever even gotten to that piece. But what I found was immediately, that's where people were going. They were saying terrible things about staying in her race. And then they were saying things, um, you know, oh, well, you know, maybe, maybe if her, her parents taught her better, um, sounds like nobody educated her on, you know, how to, um, pick, you know, pick your dating partner and, oh my, the terrible things. And then there's just one time my, my, um, brother, oh, he went on to one of these, and this was a learning experience, but he went in and tried to actually like be reasonable with these people that were saying terrible things, you know, like, oh, well, you know, she shouldn't have been seeing him to begin with. And how do you not know that, you know, someone is, you know, bad. And um, my brother tried to rationalize with these um, commenters and say, you know, listen, I'm, I'm Emily's uncle. I just want to let you know, you know, that this is, this is serious. She was the sweetest girl and just kind of take this like try to bring it down um, and tell people that to remember that, you know, there are family out there reading this. And one of them turned and went after my brother in a sense and started blaming him too um, for not being a better role model and, um, you know, teaching her how to pick dating partners. And it it was terrible. The blame that gets placed on women um, as a whole, I think has been there for a long time and it's just gotten increasingly worse. Yeah. You know, it's like that, um, the analogy of the, if you've, depending on what you're wearing, somehow that got you raped, right? Mm-hmm. Like when people yeah. say things about your, the, a woman's top or a woman's skirt or the same scenario happened to me, even with my daughter, unrecognizable in a morgue, yeah. you know, people saying and blaming, um, and that's just that's just not okay. Yeah. Uh, I think it happens to women in all sorts of, of abusive relationships, where they're blamed. Um, society is quick to say, like, why are they still there? If there's yeah. if the person's so bad, why are they there? Um, you know, as if they so somehow enjoy it or they're asking for it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a it's a real it's a it's a big it's heavy on my heart. Now, what was your life like prior to this trauma event and how has this impact your family? Oh, gosh. Honestly, um, I thought I I thought I was doing a lot of things right before this happened. Um, and, I, and I've come back to a place where I, I think I was. But the way that I'd been doing it didn't keep my child safe, didn't keep her from 
you know, becoming a, a homicide victim. So I was very quick to to go inward on, you know, where did where did I fall short? What what did I mess up along the way? So I was right there with, you know, people are blaming my child for a a violent death. Um, I here I was blaming myself for for not being able to keep her safe. And what did I do wrong as far as how I started to doubt that magic in her and that kindness and that altruism and and get really down on myself thinking what did i do wrong, you know wrong like if i would have raised her to be not a nice person mm-hmm. you know um to not be so open and non not judgmental with who she was dating and yeah. or friends with would she be here mm-hmm. um because maybe she would you know if she was if i just raised somebody that was a kind of a jerk to people maybe this maybe this man wouldn't have been attracted to her i don't know but for me our lives um i was always you know i would look at things with you know the optimism and that's been really hard to get back to mm-hmm. especially as i've watched the condition of the world just continue to worsen every day um it's been really hard to get back to and i have a young son who i mean to say that this this has absolutely imploded our family um is is just an understatement in you know his entire sense of safety in the in the world was shattered um you know for a little boy at eight years old to have his first reaction to to his mother and father telling him what what someone had done to his sister mm-hmm. for him at eight years old to turn and say why didn't she bring me with her i could have kept her safe yeah. he's eight yeah. <laughs> so those are those are the kinds of kids i have um just that deep deep love and it's it's very quiet in my home now it's very it's very lonely um and we've all just been working on how to rebuild our lives because there is a before and after there's absolutely nothing that in a practical way that stays the same right. my career changed everything changed yeah everything. yeah I, i i get that Um, you've been a licensed um, clinician for many years. Now you're going through your own personal experience with trauma. What gaps and services have you discovered in receiving access to mental health support? That has been what I, what I believe is a very, very positive eye opener for me. Um, as a licensed clinician, I've, I've always been invested in, you know, um, underserved communities, you know, like underserved areas of social work, I should say. And so, you know, for for me, like my my first experience with social work that made me decide to become a social wor- worker was ironically volunteering at a women's center. And um, from there, I went my first um, real social work job. I was a parenting educator. And I would work with at-risk um, 
families that hadn't had their take their children taken from them yet, but they were going to because they were right on that cusp between um, risk and abuse. Mm -hmm. And a, a lot of it had to do with education and supports and learning, learning how to be, be a mother, learning right. what baby needs were, learning how to not, not, you know, continue to put yourself first when you had children to take care of. Yeah. So, you know, in doing all of that, I thought I had experienced a lot of um, different types of social needs. And I can tell you that what I have learned in the last two years about the lack of access and the lack of existing supports there for trauma and, and grief that has nowhere to go are so few and far between. And if they're there, they are so hard to find, um, especially when you are incredulously depressed. Yeah. Um, it's been, it's been very eye-opening for me um, to know how hard it is for me who went into this trauma knowing how to do certain things because of my history and my career mm -hmm. to when I sit back and I put myself in the shoes of someone else who doesn't already know how to access certain things, I, I could just weep. My, my heart just feels, it feels like it's just opening up and it's just going to, it's just going to bleed all over the place because that additional pain and stressor of just you're all alone, you know, not, not everybody has family supporting them, not, and then to not be able to find a resource. Um, what did you do? What, what, what were you able to do as you were, you know? combing through all of this mess to say, you know, wait a minute, you know, I can rely on what I know, but I'm still in, stuck between a rock and a hard place. So when you decided, no, I have to figure this out because I know I need the resources. What did you do? Absolutely. I, um, well, sadly, um, I live seven miles from the tragedy at the Sandy Hook school and over the years, you know, there there were kind of a um, a lot of different grief services and and things of that nature put into place after that horrible tragedy happened. Um, and you know, I would have people just kind of presuming that I was I was just going to be able to easily get supports. But even in this area that has had you know this terrible inundation, grief and trauma. There was, there was hardly a thing. Um, when I finally got uh, someone on the phone, I had called this center called the Resiliency Center. And I found, I mean, they, they did exactly what I need. They, what I needed for myself and my son, they work with adults, they work with kids, they did expressive arts, not just talk therapy, because he was refusing to talk. And I didn't know how to make the words come out of my mouth. So even as a, a talking professional, I couldn't talk. Mm -hmm. um, I just knew I couldn't get through this, through even the basic steps, the practical steps without having someone to bounce it off of. And so I, I called and only to find out that, that this was a grant funded program and it was supposed to be just for the residents of, of Newtown who had gone through that terrible tragedy. And I thought, you've got to be kidding me. 
I begged and begged and begged. They were so kind. They weren't refusing to help me. They just had a grant to work with them. Right. And, you know, I, I begged and I told them, I said, I've already called other places and, you know, they don't want people like me, like the typical grief groups and things. They didn't, that's, I'm not what they're looking for. That was the equivalent of, you know, dropping some kind of a, a an explosion in the middle of their grief group because I was a homicide survivor and that, that wasn't, they're usual right here in my community anyway. So yeah. you know, we were getting kind of brushed off and redirected no matter who I tried. Um, but I'm so grateful to say that um, the Resiliency Center did end up taking on um, help helping me and they were willing to help my son. Um, luckily, right at that time, they were just starting to be able to take on people that weren't in the Newtown community, but it was like on a situational basis. Yeah. And then I found out that um, part of their grant came from the um, crime victims of crime compensation unit in, in the state of Connecticut. And so I was therefore entitled to that service even without right. living there. But I mean, who can just, who has the stamina to have their child murdered and then go find out all that information? I mean, that's a lot. Yeah. 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 You know, it takes a lot of like determination and energy that you don't have. And, you know, having to talk to people time after time and, and tell what, what's happened and then just to just to feel like you're some kind of an alien or, or a burden yeah. um it is it is terrible so i have had a big reality check on access to services um and so i'm let's, let's, let's go over that again let's go over that again for individuals that um have had cases like yours or homicide and mm -hmm. don't feel that they have um support or don't know where to even begin it starts first with you right it starts first with you and then what are the other steps that you said having the resilience you know continuing calling because that's a this is a i i really want people to understand these are the things that you're going to have to do you're going to have to show up for yourself first you're going to have to get that willpower right yeah and, and and just share with me again some of the things that you did um, I had to call, I had to get online. I had to research places. I had to, I had to ask people like who helps people like me? Because even as a, as a clinician, I myself had an, I'd had, um, experience working with, um, children and families that had had grief in their lives, but not traumatic grief like this. Yeah. And so I didn't even have my own answers. So you, you know, you have to, you have to, you have to get the wherewithal to, to know that you need some help. You have to know you're not okay. Um, and so you have to somehow come to terms with that. And then you have to go that next step. You have to, to find something. So for me, you know, I had to get online. I had to, so that meant that I needed to either have a phone, a computer, internet, whatever it is, I needed to start looking. Um, and it, time after time, you know, it, when, when I was looking up just for, for grief support, those weren't the ones, those were not the ones, those were the ones that, you know, um, grandma had cancer and, and died. Um, and it was very sad that they were not trauma. They were not scary. They were not services 
for us. Yeah. Um, and here I was thinking, oh my God, my son is getting deeper and deeper into the process of this. I can't make sense out of my own mind, let alone get in on his, even as a clinician. And I can't find him help. Yeah. And um, I mean, it took weeks. Emily was Emily was killed on December 9th, 2018. I think I was in talking to somebody the last week of January. So that's how long it took between getting my mindset in play and actually finding someone who said yes and then actually acted on it and like made an appointment with me and everything. And then I got to talk to somebody. So all that time had passed, which I guess for some, maybe that what maybe that's not a lot of time. I, I've met people that their grief has stayed stacked for a very long period of time and they you know they yeah. don't they don't look for uh, help yeah um, for me that was a very long time yeah well you listen to your body and and and, and with also of course i'm sure with your um you know being a a a licensed clinician and understanding that but still even outside of the professional part you listen to your body and what you needed in order to move forward because i think at you know we're grieving is a you know it's one of those things that um you're not ready to work through it until you're ready to work through it you know what i mean um um, it's it's just one of those things that we see as um um if i don't have the education behind what i'm needing to do for myself i'm not going to look for it but you know if you're a person that's really wanting to decide to do something differently and i know you've said that probably to some of your clients before you you, in order for you to move forward you have to want it for yourself and i'm uh, and and i didn't mean to stop and pause here and take so much time in this area but because of the type of work that you and i do i think it's imperative that other survivors that may listen and other individuals that have experienced um, trauma to realize and recognize that first you got to be willing to say um, after you know adjust to what's happened as you stated but I have to be the one in full force ready to be able to do something about this to change my outcome because I can't live like feeling like this it's it's difficult and and also like you said to see your son um, that was struggling so I'm just grateful that you did decide as early on that you did to, to you know, get the help that you and your family needed. Now, I'm going to jump into your advocacy work because that's a huge part of your journey. Um, now, share what you have um, accomplished um, that increases safety for women. Well, um, I certainly didn't stay quiet for very long when it came to kind of um, just... I mean, I feel like a like a caged animal. Like I, I had to talk. I had to rage. I had to talk. But yet, you can't rage when you need someone to truly hear you and and affect a change, right? So, like, I needed to also find a rational way to go about some of the things that needed to be done. Um, Particularly, I'm I'm sure they're nationwide, but I knew where the failures were in our state. Mm -hmm. You know, we we had failures on behalf of the the police um, with Emily trying to access help the week before she was killed. So, you know, I've 
I've started working with legislators. I know it's a work in progress and it, it's going to take really continuing to go back every single time and fight and make them listen and to to meet other survivors and get them to try to, you know, want to want to use their voice yeah. um, to change 911 policies, the way people get treated when they call for domestic. Um, there is absolutely no rationale to this work on this earth that my daughter should have been on a 911 call for an hour and 22 minutes before anybody was dispatched. That's just no, that's not 911. So, so we're addressing that. Um, we're addressing, you know, policy procedure for um, 911. Uh, we've also started addressing. I had tried to start addressing uh, really early on. I was uh, I was kind of a like a lone lone ranger, I guess. I was trying to work with um, a few local legislators to address police accountability, and that I, I was truly felt like I was dying inside trying to get somebody to understand that neglect is violence and that the neglect my daughter was shown in calling 911 and the neglect by the police department to not take it seriously and to not pursue the situation until they got to an end result. Um, now, mind you, that was on November 30th. So that was, a you know, eight days before she ended up becoming a homicide victim. Um, and so there's a, a whole lot of stuff in there that coulda, shoulda, woulda. And the bottom line is there's no accountability to make a police officer do A through Z. Mm -hmm. If they skip a few letters in the alphabet at that point anyway, it's just considered a bad decision. And there's no ramification. So with some police officers, I'm not saying the majority um, by any stretch, but there are some that without that motivation, which is that you're going to have a consequence, um, they're not going to do it for various reasons that I'm, I don't know. I can only presume exhaustion, lack of empathy, um, over overworked, uh, wh whatever it is. But they, they didn't take it seriously, and my daughter's dead. And so I am going to continue to fight and fight that fight um, for very sad reasons reasons after um our nation you know imploded and decided it was just simply wasn't going to have this anymore when uh, we all watched on national television having you know george floyd underneath the knee of a of a police officer all of a sudden my my own state too was up in arms about police behavior mm -hmm. something that had been going on for a long long time and it was not publicized right just wasn't just wasn't it wasn't something that people knew until they knew um much like with trauma and grief and and all the things that go along there's so much i wouldn't know because i didn't know um even as somebody you know in the helping profession so um i'm very committed to that i i gave some testimony last july i'm happy to say that you know through the you know the my testimony along with you know dozens of others we do have a baseline reform policy in place here now for the justice and policing in Connecticut it's received uh, horrendous opposition from um, those that you know don't support it and it's 
sadly being drawn down as like, you know, not caring about the, the police or, you know, not backing our police. And that is absolutely not my perspective. My perspective is you are overburdened. That is evident in what happened to my child. So I want to make sure you get some more services because not everybody needs to know everything. You don't have to be an expert at everything. Clearly, they don't know how to handle domestic violence. They don't know how to handle red flag. They don't know how to handle mental health, um, you know, things of that nature. So that's where my investment is in, in being part of this reform is to say like, first of all, let's put our egos down somewhere because they shouldn't be expected to know how to do everything. And if, if they can work as a team, then we can have a little bit of, of both, right? They can be the um, experts on protecting someone in a, in a violent situation. Like, you know, if I were on a call with someone and I was the mental health person or the domestic violence person, yeah, I mean, if it was a, a, a dangerous situation, I, I don't want to do that without a police officer with me. But in, until we get to a team mentality, yeah. um, we're not, you know, we're not going to have any of that and more people are going to die. Um, So I'm committed to changing that. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm going to quote you here. You said, dealing with the legal parts of this pain has been its own separate trauma that seems to get increasingly worse to navigate. What does this mean? And what are the injustices and the mistrust in this statement? This has been... Truly, um, I I can tell you that if I thought something was going to make me not be able to live, truly stay alive without both my children here with me on the earth, it has been dealing with the legal system. And it has been just absorbing this disregard for her human life. And along with that, what it's done to to our family um, and how the, if it's done it to my family, I'm quite certain it's done it to all those families. Now, you know, I live in a rural area, but that's not where my child was killed. So I don't go to court in a rural area. I go to court in the city where she was killed, like a mile from where she was just killed and dumped um so i sit in court with families that are um dealing with these crises as as a far more regular part of their community and it makes me so upset and so angry because i know what i know about how hard it was for me to get help i know how hard it is for me to be heard by the district attorney you have to you have to rage to get them to care. And it shouldn't be that way. Um, you know, the, we, when it comes to everybody has their own position on whether or not, you know, what's best for them, you know, to, uh, to, to work with the prosecutor who, in my experience, is always looking to make some kind of a deal and it, and it makes things less taxing for them and less expensive or whatever, whatever it does. But um, even if you even if you're not on board with that, they just proceed with those things anyway. Like you can talk and talk and talk and you can think that they care and they're listening. And then you can find out, you know, 
after some status conference that they've had with the other attorney and the judge that they went ahead and they made a plea plea offer without without caring what you thought about it. Um, We have had more than 20 court dates in 26 months where I have brought my 78 year old mother to court because she won't have it any other way. Her Emily was everything to her. And we've had, we're still in the same, the only thing that's different than 26 months ago was that he got charged. We've had nothing, no progress, no anything. And then um, this is something that I recently talked to some some new um, survivor moms that I've, I've gotten to know that one of the moms experienced the same thing as me um with covid it made everything worse but i assure you they were already way behind Mm -hmm. the eight ball in in dragging things out and the amount of rights that the the people that commit the crime have as as a whole let alone as opposed to the very little um rights that that the victims do so by getting to meet this this um, mom whose whose son was killed um, ten months before my daughter in the same city, um, she and I both realized that we'd had the same additional trauma happen to us a couple months ago, with the COVID and the the court shuts shuts down. Um, you know, usually there's this thing you can sign up for to get um, alerts about. Um, changes on the docket and when your next court date is now i've had those all along but they've also they've come after i've been at court so i knew they were coming like i knew what the information would be yeah so in the midst of this covid which in itself you know um forced isolation on someone who's a trauma trauma survivor and going through what my son and i my my family have been through and that in itself was wasn't a very difficult journey but so when i say trauma from the legal system i received a text message out of nowhere in september telling me that my trial was in 2025 2025 which would make it seven years from the time my child was killed it would make my little boy 15 and honestly immediately came to my mom to my my, my mind that my mother would die before it happened because she cannot live through this and i found out just just last weekend that another mother had gotten that same text and she had that same feeling and you you tr- you just think you're going to die That is the weight is so heavy. Yeah, the that weight is so, is so heavy. Yeah, I can imagine. And you can only a couple of years start to finish. I guess is like imaginable, and I guess like an average. But when you think about having to carry this piece for that long with no end result. I've stopped saying the word justice. I don't believe there's justice. 
I want accountability. I don't use the word justice talking about what this person did in the state I live because the way they treat my child, like we're, we're playing, you know, a, a game at a casino. There is no justice. Yeah. I want accountability. Yeah. And, and that's the best that I can, that I can ask the universe for every day. Just, you have, you, you, you're starting with, you, you know, you're very vocal about what, what your needs are. You're, you know, you're, um, you've, worked on some legislation and you've also started you're in the de developmental stages you stated um for forming a foundation in honor of emily tell yeah. us about that well emily's cousin um that lived up in maine shortly after emily died she um she's so sweet she uh, she made this bumper sticker and it was the coolest bumper sticker um, that said, I wish I had one with me right now, but it said, peace, love, and M. And then it said, in a world where you can be anything, be kind, right? And that is exactly, that's Emily to a fault. And it was this rainbow tie-dye. And yeah. so she was, she, she had them made and she was selling them, um, with a, like a suggested donation for people one, primarily because she wanted Emily to be all over everybody's cars. Um, but the next piece was, is she, she wanted to be able to do something to help um, Emily's uh, biological father's side of the family up there where they lived in Maine. And um, it was just, it was such a beautiful gesture Yeah. Um, that I ended up printing some more and, you know, giving them out to people down here. And somehow that peace, love and M has just, it, it always stuck with me. And so I talked with her cousin. I asked her what, what she thought about, you know, letting me kind of use a little bit of her her um, language that she'd come up with. And of course she was all for it. So we started the process of a foundation that, you know, the, um, the name will be Peace, Love and M. Um, and we're, you know, I've spent a lot of time this week trying to really hone in on exactly what what that foundation's got to do and it going to do or what you know what it needs to do it can get really overwhelming because you see so many things that that need attention right. or singer yeah but yeah. i know i have to come back to myself too and i have to i have to think about what what will help me on my journey while it's doing something that honors emily absolutely you know, because i won't be any good if it, if it just it draws and yeah. draws, draws and doesn't put back. Right. So I have yeah. to kind of find that balance. But, um, so far what we've done is we, outside of, you know, starting the paperwork and everything for the nonprofit, like my sisters and I, um, we've, we make all sorts of like different crafts and jewelry and things. And we've, you know, gone to events and we've, um, you know, sold things. And then the, the monies that have come in, we've just, use them for things um, like made a donation to something in the community that would be meaningful to Emily. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I've, I've bought a lot of trees. I've, I've bought tree like just to, you know, into the um, preserve lands and things, um, just things that mean something to her. Um, yeah. Some equipment for a special needs um, 
physical education program mm -hmm. that, you know, the kids, uh, they're looking to integrate the kids with the regular ed kids and they want to teach them things. And so, you know, we bought some balance bikes. Um, it just, just things, um, but trying to really lean down, you know, kind of come down on what, what's going to be my big picture. What will be something that just supports and continues on the, the magic of Emily in our community, but then also what is something that I can do yeah. that may help someone else who was where I was and still can't get out. Absolutely. You know, because they don't have those those things. You I know? think a lot of times too, it's often that what, you know, in the end, what we end up teaching is what we needed to learn ourselves. Um, and that kind of just turns into that defining um, purpose or, 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 you know, the what we also needed as well in order to give back to the earth. So I, I do truly believe, you know, um, once everything developed and, and once you become the, the teacher of, of it and the, the director of it, that it's the one thing that, of course, that you learned or needed to needed to learn, um, which are all of the um, the services because I was going to ask you um, who would be the ideal client or, or, or what services you would provide and a lot of things that you're in need of I'm sure will be a part of um, what you'll you know what will come from uh, or what will develop as far as the programs and services so um, if you could um, could you share a, a, a quote or a loving statement um, with our Grief Nation listeners and, and why you chose that you know, I was thinking on it during the week um, between our first time speaking and then doing this today. And there's just been a few um, statements almost that have um, always stuck with me in the last two years. And one um, was this unique way that I stumbled upon this, this, um, this little sign thing that said, it says, uh, be the light. Um, and so I've, I've got a whole bunch of things that say that kind of all over my house. Um, and as of late, a message that has been coming to me, especially when, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm grounded and I'm, I'm meditating or I'm, you know, sitting in M's room with her many, many beautiful healing tools, um, is to, trust my purpose you know um not to find it mm -hmm. it says trust my purpose mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so that's what i'm looking to do now is to just kind of continue to take all these things in and trust that um that i'm doing what i'm supposed to do i've had some really unique ha things happen to me you know, when I've been using my voice, even um, with Moms Demand Action and, you know, um, whether it's giving testimony or in the last few months, um, I've gone hard and heavy when it was election season on, you know, drawing out the voting records for people that did not support domestic violence laws. Mm -hmm. um, and I have I have made it very clear that that I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. And. Sometimes I feel like I've been a little confused because Emily was so 
not a she didn't roar she, she didn't need to yeah. <laughs> and maybe i don't need to but it's been more of who i am and i think my daughter left the earth knowing that mm-hmm. she knew her mom was coming yeah her mom was coming back you do not mess with my mom's children um and so i i kind of fall back with that on trust my purpose Mm -hmm. you know um always leave people better than you found them that's something that sticks with me and i i have to just kind of focus on that no matter what situation i'm in leaving them better than i found them I love that so much. That's a, a, a that was along my journey as well. Was trust the process because absolutely. Um, when I first start writing um, my book, uh, the key process, because my son's name is Taiki, so um, Taiki just always had this way of always losing something, which was he would always lose his keys. So, <laughs> and he would also often say to himself, "It's." Wow, how was my name? Because you named him Taiki, yeah. <laughs> he was like, how could I always leave my keys? If I lose my keys, my name is Taiki. But um, when I when I started writing the key process, a grief guide to mastering spiritual healing, I kept saying, you know, the key process. But even though I was processing the key process, the process was key. And I often write that when I, you know, when I autograph my books, um, right under the key process, I write the process was key because the process was key for me. The process of me going through and like you said, not necessarily finding it. Right. It wasn't me finding my purpose. It was defining it, defining what I needed to do that was going to work best for me. Um, and it changed over time. You know, I would be this way one week and this way one month. But when I truly um, stumbled upon the spiritual work that helped ground me, like you have often talked about and in and, and the, the, the healing aspect of what em- Emily was doing. And that was the that was the changing um, moments and the defining parts of my life that switched everything for me. It was like this, uh, you know. Um, and really, I'd like to have more people open up to that would be my hope for the world, right? That more people realize that it's not a trade-off for, for believing in God or using a Bible or, or Mm -hmm. anything like that. It's not a trade-off. Yeah. You know, I mean, my daughter believed deeply in Jesus. Yeah. Um, but there's, there's just a bigger way to look at it. You can kind of evolve (laughs) and there's just other things, but there's still, I think it's changing, but I wonder how much it gets to enter the grief community, especially how excited we get when we start talking about it. Our whole body language change. I'm like, Oh, and then, you know, we can do spirit talk. We love it. Honestly, Miami, when we talked earlier this week and we talked a little bit about, you know, me trying to think about my foundation (laughs) of all things, I had to have a CAT scan yesterday and um, and I had to be enclosed. Yeah. It was really, really, really hard, mm-hmm. um, beyond hard. Um, I would call it borderline traumatizing, but it, it was it was for the right reasons and I knew I had to do it. So, but while I was there, I was actually able to, I started thinking about our talk the other night and I was I was able to kind of like ground myself down. I did some breathing, brought, brought myself to a place 
told myself no, on, under no uncertain terms, are you opening your eyes until you're out of this machine? But while I was there, I started to have like this clarity about what it would look like if I was doing exactly what felt good and solve some of the things that are issues and, and, and help some people with their pain. So I started immediately, I was immediately thinking about trees and I was in the forest and I was thinking about, whoa, maybe I could help people be able to, to plant a tree for their loved one. And, oh, wow, look at that. It, I mean, that's something that I've done numerous times. Like we have trees planted in numerous places and we also donate trees and we buy trees for the national forest and I'll fundraise for different things and say, oh, it's so-and-so's birthday. I'd really just like for you to do this, buy a tree, you know? But I thought to myself, wow, what a great way to be able to, to help somebody memorialize Mm -hmm. their child in a in a less um formal way you know because the reality is the formal way is also incredulous in cost Mm -hmm. and it's not realistic for a lot of people and they feel they feel terrible about it yeah so i started thinking about that and then i was thinking about my crafting and things that we we do just to to heal ourselves and all the different things that emily like she made everything i mean it was it was incredible the way she could express through art and crafting but i thought to myself whoa i could i could like talk to a bereaved human and they could tell me about their child i could make them something and then they could have this thing like so right here I have on um, I have on a piece of jewelry here, and it's it's a piece of um, China sea glass that came from the coast of Maine. Emily made this. Okay. So like cool. she'd made this. This is just what I chose today. You know I'm, I'm always into her things, but um, it's just like a wire wrapped thing with you know whatever she was feeling at that moment. It's got the green tones in it, and I thought to myself. How nice would it be to be able to sit and have coffee with someone and learn a little bit about their child and and make them something, you know? Um, And then I went even a little further and I thought, wow, when we turn the bend from COVID, maybe I could teach people how to make it Mm -hmm. and just be part of like that process, you know? Um, Just all these different things started coming to mind. And, you know, then the practical pieces like, well, what would you need? And you know, and I was like, well, I would I really wouldn't need much. I'm pretty like low, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm low maintenance on things. I'm like, I'd need a space. And then I started thinking, I'm like, well, a space would be good for me because it's not always the best thing for me to be home all the time. So, you know, having like a small space to be able to use, yeah. you know, just all these different things. When I was able to, when I really, truly had to go into myself the other day to face my, my fears. Uh-huh. Of, of having that assessment done, all of it just started flooding. Like I and I, I started weeping because these it was like weeping and and I wasn't unhappy. Yeah, but it was just such a relief that my my mind got clear for a little while. Yeah, 
Yeah, I'm, I'm so excited and happy to hear that because I, I, I know the exercise that we did the day before. Oh, well, yes. And we've done that. Thank goodness. Not even knowing that I was going to have to go into this situation look, where I was so going look. to have to really bring right. myself to a place of, of, of it comfort. Just, it just warms my heart when I when I um when I share the work that I do, a lot of people, because they don't understand the world of shamanism or they don't understand the world of, you know, mastering spiritual healing. When I even talk about, you know, um, the programs that I offer or just having uh, a consultation with um, our discovery sessions or whatever, you know, we call them. Um, a lot of times people don't really know how they have actually been able to tap into mm-hmm. that, um, um, their self, their self-conscious mind and and the conscious mind and then like you said when that was accompanied with fear um you were actually able to tap into it and i'm just so glad that you shared that with me because it helps me realize that the work that i'm doing is real so real so real and so valuable i don't think that i would have been able to i'd have gotten through my assessment that i needed to have done the cat scan but i would have just laid there in fear and it would have been like, you know, the, the fear, the fear, the fear. And I, I wouldn't have had that recent experience with you to, to really, really help me do something good. Um, and, and just give myself that, that time to really, to just go real deep, yeah. you know, to, to ask Emily, you know, to, to tell me like my, you know, what do you think? And yeah. You know, and, and it came and right out of you. It just came to her like, out of how, does mom, how does mommy go about this without being pushy yeah. with people and putting, telling them where they're at in their grief? You know, how does mommy put this out there so that they, people will come, mm-hmm. but yet it won't discount people that they don't know how to put that first step forward. Yeah. So I started thinking in all these broad things and just as soon as I got out of that machine I started jotting down notes yeah. um of Good things to keep kind of building on yeah you know yeah. and in the meantime like we craft and we craft away my we make dream catchers and all, I mean so many different things with all different stones in them and and none of us uh, my sisters and I it's not been um for any kind of profit it's just a matter of it helps us heal yeah there's an action to emily in doing it um quite often when we're crafting we're in her room um you know using her candles and her you know her music whatever it may, may be and um and we've just used it to to put good back out into the community yeah but um, that's who she was I mean she, absolutely um, art expression and it's just that those are the things that who she was and it kind of it, it puts you and I'm sure by by making some of these things and and developing you know new ideas and like you said being able to help someone else a, a family member when they're talking about their loved one to create something um, and in creating is just, uh, you know, it opens up a whole world of love and light to come in. Um, that is so beautiful. I'm so excited that you had that experience and that it's going to, you know, further develop, you know, what you're going to do with the foundation. So how can others reach you? How, um, where are you? Uh, well, um, within the next day or two, 
um, we're going to take my website from um, edit mode to actually making it published. So okay. the, the website will be um, www.peacelovem, so just peace, love, E-M, okay. uh, no capitals, dot org. So, and in addition to that, I have um, Peace, Love, and M on Facebook. And then I also have Peace, Love, and M on Instagram. So... Okay. We've made those separate things and, you know, it's mostly just been for sharing about Emily. Um, I hope that somebody, you know, looks on sometime and, and says, oh, you know, like maybe I could try to do that or, you know, because I'm very, very open about the different stages of what it is like to to walk this walk. Um, and sometimes I think, oh, gosh, you know. No one wants to hear this again, you know, Debbie, Debbie Downer, whatever it is. And I'm like, no, yeah. I, even if that's their, their perspective, shame on them, because I wish I could be so lucky to not understand me. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You don't want to trade. So, you know, if I look at it and I think, well, you know, I'm I'm here. My voice is is more than it ever was. I have to represent. I have to carry Emily with me. Right. And I have to live a life. I have to to spend a very long time making my son know that he is not any less important alive than she is deceased. That is a tough line to tell, right? Because grief just, and you have other children. You know what I mean, mm -hmm. right? You know what I mean. I know and what you mean. I thought to myself, how can this boy's legacy be? to just slowly watch his mom just disintegrate, you know? And and he knew, he's keenly aware of, of how much I love my kids. Yeah. And then his this terrible tragedy happens to his sister. And then all of a sudden, I'm not like loving on him the way that I always did. And the I couldn't possibly, that has been, really hard to do at times when when things feel really dark but it's it's definitely something that i bring myself back to that statement over and over again like he cannot grow up feeling less important than she is yeah. he can't oh i um, feel that i feel i remember when i read that um in your in your notes i immediately understood exactly what you meant i have a younger son um, that's in the military and um, well all of my children are, are, are adults and that real that that really resonated with me for him being the uh, the other son that I have because I have three daughters and two sons and it resonated with me because he's also the youngest but yet all of my mission and power and love of course has been going to the dedication of me building what I have and sometimes that could come across that way that you know well what about me I'm still here you know what I'm saying it could come across to my daughters as well, well um, and then, you know the the bad part of that is is you know they can start when when you're not seeing them yeah they can start acting it out yeah and then yeah. you know then, 
and we're not the only families that this happens to. It no. happens to all of us. You no, know what I'm saying? It's I mean, not to be other families. It going, has going, to be. going, going. You're trying to get through. First of all, you're still in and you're still trying to receive justice. You're trying, still trying to go through that whole process of the legal system. So everything is still right now MMM of you trying to, you know, make sure that yeah. you get some, you have some resolution behind yeah. this tragedy that has happened, occurred to your life. And then, then there's the building your foundation part. And then yeah. there's the, you know, still working yeah. through your own entire yeah. grief behind and it. Saving face for my yeah. son. You know? Yeah, and it's still and like, oh, it's so it's difficult. It's trust me, I totally understand. Um, and we could stay, we could be here all over for forever with the, with just that particular conversation on our other children. But um, leave us with a sweet memory of Emily, and then let me know what's your call to action. Ah, Emily, she's just the sweetest, sweetest, sweetest little girl. Um, I have so many fond memories of her and and how gentle she always was, how loving and gentle with her um, grandparents. I mean, it just, it, it was like she was playing with an eight-year-old. Like she just loved to spend time with her family. She loved her family so much. Um, when I think about Emily, I have so many the sweetest memories and one that I always come back to when I talk about her as a healer mm -hmm. and how I definitely knew at a young age, early on, I was young myself, so I may not have fully processed it, but when Emily was just shy of five years old, um, we were living at my mother's house. I had um, decided to go to college and, and try to, you know, get my own skill set together. And so she kind of raised with a village um, by my sisters who were still, they're younger than me. They were still finishing up high school. And my mom was there and Em lived there. And so the great part is she never even once in her life had um, a non-family childcare provider. She was just either with family or with her mother. So I remember uh, my mom um, founded this, um, animal welfare society here for, you know, mistreated animals back in the seventies. Okay. So she was a co-founder of that. And with that came our whole lives growing up with all sorts of animals that nobody wanted. Um, so my mom had a lot of cats and with cats come mice. Mm -hmm. So at five years old, Emily could not understand one, why the cat would kill the mouse. And two, she didn't understand the permanency of death. Um, and not only so much that she didn't understand it, I think she wouldn't accept it. Yeah. Because as a little girl, she would, you know, um, get paper towel and she would put the mouse in a box and she would wrap it up and she would say a little prayer and she thought the mouse was coming back. And, you know, so from an early age, something that was completely meaningless in, in her big world. I mean, it's, it's mouse, but there was that ability to care for something that wasn't doing anything for yeah. her, right? Like that altruism, like that, just that general compassion and, and true empathy and wanting to heal. Yeah. So when I think back about her and I think about how she ended up on the path that she's on, you know, I still have days where it's, I remain real angry that her path was was stopped so short but i do think she's still here working it's just that she's working from a much higher place 
and and she's helping to kind of implode some of the terrible things in this world and and she's not going to stop helping to shake it up until we all change it down here yeah. um and in part of that when i think about emily and how she cared for that those little mice i kind of just think about how i feel how i i've been up at night just sick to my stomach knowing there are people out there that must feel as bad as i do and and they need someone to talk to and how do we all how do our worlds collide how do we make that happen where everybody's in their own little box how do we care about people that we don't have to care about because i want to care about them and i want them to care about me and and then we get stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger and then maybe we can make something change but when i need to really get my self-centered and and think about M that's something i always go back to just that that piece of her that she just she she really at four and a half years old thought she could bring up a, a mouse back to life she did the same thing with birds she did you know just it was yeah it's pretty remarkable wow. um the thank selflessness you. thank you for sharing emily's life with us um with with my grief nation listeners and and just sharing your day um remembering her spirit and, and that's still here um still supporting supporting us um still guiding us to to do what's right in the world um and 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 having hope and um in dark places that are that are just part of our world but through her and through the work that i know that you're going to be doing it's going to help so many people so thank you thank you for your your gifts and 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 for um the journey of of what occurred with emily and and all the great things that she continued to be um to you and your family and to all of us um what's your call to action yeah, i was thinking about that i think what my call to action today is for it's kind of a it's it's got a little bit of a few things combined together is one one thing is for people to be part of the change and i don't mean sitting home talking about it while you're watching the news i mean find one thing that matters to you get involved don't just talk about it um you know find out more about it and then find out who to who to contact about it you know we all have our things um that you know really stand out to us and i think we have a lot of people that are you know compassion fatigued they they just don't even know what to do um but i can tell you that you're you're putting our world in danger if you don't do something um because here i am uh, and and you are miami i mean bereaved mothers fighting the fight yeah. and there's so many of us fighting the fight um we need people to come with us just yeah. to stand up to the atrocities i don't mean they have to go deal with legislation i don't mean that they have to put on a red mom's the man shirt nothing like that we just need you to stand up um to ha- to have our back if we're at the forefront of it because our pain is so raw that we can get the attention to to make those changes but we but we need you to get behind us and we need you to stay and that is something that i talked about um recently is how much people that um 
are in trauma, how it, it never goes away. There is no typical grief stages that apply. How could it possibly? You don't ever stop loving your child. And so therefore, unless your love dies, your grief doesn't die. Mm -hmm. You have to learn how to live with them side by side. So my other call to action is for people to check on their friends. Check on your friends, check on your neighbor, check on, check in with your social service department and find out if there's someone that just needs some love. Um, I think we can save lives this way. I think that, you know, it, it's very, very easy to be succumb with, with, with darkness, with so much going on in the world. And then if you add other things into it, you never know what someone's going through. Um, and how much of an impact that one little thing can do and how you can, without very much effort at all, leave somebody better than you found them. And that's something really important to me, um, as it was to Emily, is to just do something that improves someone's life in some way. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jennifer. I truly um, appreciate your time today. Um, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening and tuning in today to Jennifer Lawler and allowing her to come um, share her story on her beautiful daughter, daughter Emily. And um, thank you once again for um, sharing your space with sharing this space. Thank with you, today. you, Miami. It's so nice uh, to meet someone that I, I believe the intervention of, of uh, Emily and Taiki had a little bit to do with that. I oh, think yes. they collided our they collided our worlds for a reason. I, I definitely believe that. Thank you so much. Well, there you have it, Grief Nation listeners, and thank you for tuning in to another transformative segment on It's the Miami Night Show, Grief Talk. Today, we give thanks filled with love and gratitude for our special guest, Jennifer Lawler, for expressing your very unique grief journey and sharing ways of understanding the healing process. This is your girl, Miami Knight, with much love and light until we connect again spiritually. Bye-bye. <laughs>